Welcome to the VVV Podcast. Today, we are joined by John Adler, co-founder and CTO of Fuel Labs. Fuel Labs claims to be the world's fastest modular execution layer with high security and flexible throughput, as well as a focus on a superior developer experience. Fuel Labs is a project focused on blockchain scalability solutions. John Adler created the optimistic roll-up design paradigm and with his team members developed a high-performance alternative to EVM called FuelVM. Fuel Labs central pillars are the parallel transaction execution, the Fuel virtual machine, and the Sway programming language. So, welcome everybody. I'm Andy, Chief Research Officer here at VBB. And today I will host this AMA together with Michael, another member of our research team. Shaw got sick and couldn't join us today. So Shaw, if you're listening, the team sends you best wishes. Get well soon. Hello. Perfect, yeah. Hi, John. So let me introduce John Adler, co-founder of Fuel and Celestia and the mastermind behind, behind the optimistic rollups, yeah. So welcome, John. Thank you for Thank joining. You. It's Thank a you pleasure to me, have Andrew. you. Great, great that you are here. So uh, in order to structure the event, uh, we have scheduled uh, about one hour for this AMA. Um, since our community has entered a lot of very interesting questions, um, I would like to ask uh, how much time do you have today? Uh, I have the full hour, but if we have to go slightly over, then that's fine with me. Oh, that's great. Yeah, great. Perfect. Yeah, I don't want to overstress this time schedule, but uh, maybe we we find some some really interesting questions yeah, from the community. And if we can take some additional more minutes, that would be highly appreciated. Yeah, thank you. Yep, for sure. All right. So before we jump into fuel, um, could you give us a, a quick overview about your background story and how did you come into the blockchain space? Yeah, sure. So let's see. Uh, I guess you could say that uh, I got introduced to blockchain stuff uh, at university. I was doing my graduate studies at University of Toronto. And my advisor was involved in the early days of Ethereum and would kind of introduce his students to you know, the concept of blockchain and Ethereum and all this other stuff. Uh, and I remember back in the day that I was you know, taking a nice walk with my research group and then they were telling me that the everyone was kind of hysterical and going crazy on, on crypto forums because Ether had tripled in price from, I think, you know, 30 cents to a dollar or some, something like that. Uh, so, you know, back, at, back then, I didn't really know what, what the heck this was. Uh, I had no idea. So I kind of started looking into it. And the thing that really interests me about Ethereum in particular, was that there was kind of a heavy uh, relationship with compilers and virtual machines, which happened to be a pretty like side passion of mine that I didn't unfortunately get the chance to formally research in university, but I was always passionate about. Uh, so that's kind of where I first got interested in it. And I said, okay, well, there's this thing, it's blockchain, you know, you have to run stuff in a virtual machine, you have to compile some high level language to it. You have to worry about optimizations and this gas thing. It's also interesting. Uh, so at some point a few years ago, I decided to 
leave my graduate studies and join consensus to do research on layer two scalability. Uh, that's kind of where I was exposed to Mustafa, one of my co-founders at Celestia Labs, uh, his papers on fraud proofs and lazy ledger. And that kind of inspired me to propose the first uh, public design of what is now known uh, in the industry as optimistic rollups. Uh, and then from there, it was basically not too far a stretch to you know, say, well, OK, we have this design. How far can we take it and actually scale Ethereum? And that's, that's what Fuel is, essentially. Amazing, amazing. So you met um, Nick Dodson during your time at, at Consensus, yeah? That's correct, yes. We were both in the Toronto office on occasion. Great, great. So when, when was the idea born to, to start your own project? Hmm. The years all kind of blend together, so I wouldn't be able to tell you a year, but it was just some summer, I guess. The summer before DevCon 5, maybe? Something like that. Because, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the ideas of optimistic rollups had been published. Uh, people were a bit excited about them. They got much more excited at DevCon 5, but no, there was, a, there was a bit of excitement there. And that's when I said, okay, well, might as well actually turn this into a product somehow. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. Great, great. So um, let's, let's jump into fuel, yeah? So most people see layer two rollups only as a solution yeah, to, to scale, let's say to, to optimize the throughput and also to lower fees. Yeah. But I think fuel goes far beyond of this idea yeah, by expanding the, the base functionality of Ethereum. So could you give us an introduction to fuel as a modular execution layer and how it's different compared to other layer two rollups? Sure. So I like to call Fuel the, or we like to call Fuel the fastest modular execution layer. Uh, and there's two components to that expression. One is the fastest, the other one is modular execution layer. Uh, and that doesn't reach the, or that doesn't touch the scope of increased flexibility and all this other stuff, which I can also get to. Uh, but to kind of break down the, you know, that expression of fastest modular execution layer, uh, we'll start with the fastest which is that the reason that blockchains today, EVM blockchains, let's say, like Ethereum, have certain restrictions on their transaction throughput is largely derived from execution being the bottleneck. Execution being the execution of transactions through the Ethereum virtual machine interpreter. Not consensus. Uh, so if you swap out the consensus protocol to, let's say, I don't know, Snowball or whatever, Avalanche Consensus uh, or Tendermint, you don't actually change anything because that's not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is very much the execution. Right? For a particular machine, you can only fit so many transactions per second through that machine physically. Uh, so to, if you take the EVM and you move it into a rollup, that's really, you can really think of it like swapping out the consensus, right? Is that instead of having, you know, instead of having something like Tendermint or Nakamoto consensus or something to produce new blocks in this rollup, you have some mechanism that leverages the base Ethereum chain for timestamping. Well, congratulations, that's, your, that's a consensus protocol in some ways, right? That's what I used to call back in the day, merge consensus, because consensus like merged with another chain, such as Ethereum, using Ethereum. So you swapped out the consensus protocol, but you haven't touched the bottleneck, which is still execution. Uh, and 
you know, EVM rollups will be faced by the same constraints as EVM layer ones and EVM sidechains, which is the EVM itself. And for the most part, this is true for any virtual machine, even more advanced ones. Execution is basically always going to be the bottleneck, but by having better virtual machines, you can get more throughput on, on the same physical hardware. And that's where the fastest in our fastest modular execution layer comes in, right? The fuel protocol and the fuel VM are designed with two, two things that synergize to increase throughput. One of them is the protocol itself allows for parallel transaction execution. So this means transactions, instead of having to be executed one after the other, many transactions can be executed at the same time. This gives a pretty significant inc increase in throughput. Uh, the second thing that synergizes with that is that the virtual machine itself, which is single-threaded, in other words, you, know, you can execute multiple instances of the virtual machine in parallel, but there's still single-threaded performance. Uh, and that performance is greatly improved by using a much more uh, like down closer to the metal virtual machine uh, that is also designed to be less wasteful than the Ethereum virtual machine by learning from some of the shortcomings of the EVM, such as it doesn't use 256-bit words where you have to use, or you need big integer math for every single like, addition, extremely wasteful. It uses 64-bit words. It uses registers instead of a stack, so you spend less time doing gas accounting overhead, etc. So that's kind of where the fastest comes in. Okay, now modular execution layer. Uh, this is slightly different than a rollup in the sense that what a rollup wants to do is prove to a contract on Ethereum that some hash is valid. And this could be proven with a validity proof. It could be proven counterfactually with a fraud proof. But there's some sort of proof there that some hash is valid. That's it. That's all a rollup is doing. Uh, a modular execution there goes a step further and doesn't just have a trust-minimized two-way bridge with an Ethereum contract, but it supports full trust-minimized light clients, which are a step further. And what's an example of this? Some projects uh, will, instead of posting transaction data, will post state diffs. They'll post a diff that the they'll post a diff to the state that the transactions resulted in, but not the transactions themselves. So this this means if you are running some light client off chain and you want to know, has my transaction been included in this blockchain? You don't know, because the transaction is nowhere is not committed anywhere. The only thing you have is state diffs. Uh, another example is some uh, blockchain. Oh, sorry, Bitcoin will have a Merkle tree of transactions. And it'll have a Merkle tree of transactions. There's even a whole paper, there's a whole paper in the Bitcoin design paper, there's a whole section in the Bitcoin design paper for this, which is that uh, there's a Merkle tree so that you can show like clients that your transaction is in the block without having to show them all transactions in a block. That's literally the whole point of a Merkle tree. Uh, if it wasn't for the need for this property, you wouldn't need a Merkle tree. You could just hash all the transactions with one hash. And that's what some projects do because that's cheaper. But now it means that you can't actually run the light client because you don't have a Merkle tree of transactions. Right? You would have to provide the light client whole blocks, at which point it's not a light client. It's a full node, kind of. Uh, so these are examples of ways that projects have kind of cut corners in the name of efficiency to just be a roll-up. But the modular execution layer goes a step further, and it actually allows full trust-minimized light clients 
and trust minimized bridges, two-way bridges, as opposed to just trust minimized two-way bridges. So that's kind of the explanation of fastest modular execution layer. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, thank you very much yeah, for for this deep dive into the, the structure of fuel. So uh, you mentioned uh, parallel execution. Um, could you could you uh, give us more insights how fuel is able to to parallelize uh, those executions? Because it's yeah. it's not not native natively possible on on Ethereum. Yeah. Yes, uh, I can explain. Uh, parallel transaction execution, there's kind of two nuanced points here. Uh, one of them is how is it accomplished? And two is how is it accomplished in a way that the EVM can't really replicate without very significant changes? Uh, and those are kind of two points. One of them is how is it accomplished? Every transaction in Fuel must specify a strict access list uh, in other words, it is mandatory, of contracts that the transaction may touch. Uh, keyword here being may, not will. Uh, so in other words, the list, this access list, is go must be a superset of the contracts that will be touched by the transaction. Uh, if it's a subset, then that means the transaction will revert. Uh, it will revert if you attempt to access the contract outside of this access list. Uh, this has been proposed in Ethereum before. Uh, you can modify the transaction format on Ethereum to support this. Uh, but it would require very significant non-backwards compatible changes. Uh, it would also require a lot of infrastructure changes to like wallets and so on. Uh, but it could be done. Now, there are proposals uh, to allow parallel transaction execution without such overhauls. And the issue with such proposals is they rely on optimistic concurrency, which basically means execute a transaction. Uh, if it turns out that the transaction tried to access something outside of its access list, temporarily roll it back, and then attempt to re-execute it after the contention has been resolved. Uh, this is problematic for two reasons. The first is if you roll back, then re-execute, you're now wasting resources. And if those resources are not priced and accounted for in the gas model, that could be very easily a denial of service vector. And basically, it's unavoidable that it ends up being a denial of service vector uh, because it's not priced for. And you can't really price for it in any reasonable way without basically making something that's isomorphic to strict access lists. Uh, and the problem of the dial service vector is, of course, that someone may present you a benchmark of some proof of concept implementation or even some production implementation of an optimistic concurrent parallel EVM. And they might say, hey, look, on historical transactions, this is 10 times faster than a single-threaded EVM. But that's irrelevant. It, like, it doesn't matter at all, because historical transactions are not adversarial to this exploit vector. Uh, historical transactions, you know, if they're executed and if, sorry, if they're created in the past, and this exploit vector did not exist, of course they would not exploit it. So of course your implementation on historical transactions runs fine, and this is a very important nuance for anyone designing blockchain protocols. Looking at the past is irrelevant; it means nothing because the past was not trying to exploit your protocol change or your new protocol if you're making a whole new protocol. 
you must look at what is the worst case scenario that someone can do, make some simulations of those transactions, and then run your change against that, not against history. So unfortunately, this optimistic concurrency stuff is very easily vulnerable to denial of service factor, where someone can do something like send a bunch of transactions and then kind of chain them together. So they're all conflicting in a way that is unknown at the beginning and that you must re-execute. Now, say that there's the 100. Uh, all 100 are conflicting, so they all need to be re-executed. And after that, okay, one of them gets executed successfully. So 99 of them are left, the second iteration. Now, these 99 are now conflicting again in a different way. So one of them gets executed successfully, and the other 98 need to be re-executed, and so on. So this is a quadratic cost that needs to be paid, but isn't accounted for in gas. That's a denial of service factor. And this is basically unavoidable for optimistic concurrency systems. This includes basically any system, not just parallel EVM, but Aptos, for instance, which uses optimistic concurrency, is also vulnerable to this fundamental denial of service factor at the protocol level. Uh, to have parallel transaction execution, you really need it to be enshrined in a format that will work even in the worst case. And the only thing that has this property is strict access lists. Access lists at the transaction level that tell you which state elements, in the case of fuel contracts, uh, the transaction will touch. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that answers. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, I think uh, nowadays there is a strong competition also in the layer two space between optimistic rollups and zero knowledge rollups. So what is your take on CKEVM approaches? My take is wait and see. Uh, I don't think we've seen any ZKEVM actually on like a production testnet where proofs are created. Uh, I guess not a production testnet, but just on like some public testnet where proofs are actually created and people can see. I don't think any such thing exists yet. So I would love to see, I guess. I mean, you can say, well, what's my thoughts on ZKEVM? Well, it doesn't exist, right? Uh, it's still just a blog post at, at this time. Uh, when they're live and in public and on test nets that can be seen, like how Fuel is on a public test net right now that was launched uh, a month ago or something, uh, when ZKEVMs are in public test nets with proofs actually being created, uh, then maybe I'll be able to give a more informed opinion. But at least so far from what I've seen, they lack fundamental instructions. I remember one of them I was looking at, you couldn't get the amount of ether that was sent with a contract call. So you know, many, many things, many contracts in Ethereum will try to, will accept Ether, sorry. They'll accept Ether to be, you can deposit Ether to them, right? You know, if you don't have the ability to, the, the contract doesn't have the functionality to to read how much Ether has been sent with a contract call, I mean, like, what can you actually code, right? Like, you can't, you can't, you can't your contracts can't even accept Ether. So, you know, there's, there's a variety of things out there that quote unquote call themselves ZKVM but yet are missing these really important functionalities. So I wouldn't exactly say that any ZK, ZK EVM actually exists today that can be used. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, Ann, can I ask a question real quick? Yeah, um, sure. Sure, Michael. Michael, I'm a researcher at VVA. And um, yeah, today I was looking at the website, sort of um, checking out you know, I'm trying to understand the optimistic part, if it's, if the protocol is still an optimistic or if it's a ZK and I'm just, it, it does say it's ag agnostic to either of those. Just curious about, you know, what you meant by that. Maybe if you can talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so the, the fuel protocol itself is not inherently requiring one or the other. Uh, and we aren't personally maximalists of one technology or the other, or we're not trying to pick winners of you know what technology will be the winner long term. It's we'll use whatever is practical to provide the users with the most security. Uh, and currently today, that is fraud proofs. Maybe in a few years, there'll be ZK proofs. And maybe in a few years, there'll be something else entirely that we don't even know exists today, or that doesn't even exist today. Uh, but the protocol itself does not actually have fundamentally in, this, in the protocol some bias or some some requirement on any of these proof systems. So that basically what I'm saying is over time that I don't I don't want to say will but will most likely ch change and evolve over time how validity is proven. It's really interesting. Yeah, um, I I have another question. Um sort of related, but um, I'm just, I've been looking at the fuel configurations and basically, you know, it has a lot going on there as far as it can be an L2 rollup, it can be an L1 uh, blockchain, uh, it can be a side chain. And so um, how does this all work as far as integrating with other, say, L1 blockchains or existing on its own? Because when, when I look at the configurations, it sort of looks like a puzzle. Uh, between Fuel and Ethereum and Celestia. And so I'm curious to learn more about that. Yeah, so both the software implementation and the protocol itself uh, was designed with agnosticism to various components. Uh, so it was built both at the modular protocol and as a modular software stack. Uh, and this agnosticism allows us to do things like not require that the base layer must be Ethereum or even an EVM chain or anything like that, right? Various other protocols that I've looked into, you know, they may say they're modular software-wise, but then like you look at how they're implemented and like they have very hard and strict dependencies in the protocol itself of it receives events uh, from Ethereum and those events are like RLP encoded it has all the kind of backwards compatibility baggage of the EVM. And those are like enshrined into the actual consensus rules of their execution system. Uh, like there's actually, you know, like actual like processing of these things. They enter the state or some commitment in the blocks and whatever. Uh, and that's what we don't have. We don't have any hard dependence in the protocol or the software stack on specifically, you must use a base layer that is Ethereum and nothing else. Uh, the, the base layer is just some plugin, basically, that you can swap out to a different adapter that will read messages from Solana if you want, or a different EVM chain if you want to change your RPC endpoint, uh, or Celestia. Uh, if you don't even want to have a smart contract uh, and you want to have a uh, like you don't want to have a settlement smart contract and you want to run a sovereign rollup, right? Use Celestia. Or if you want to not use any of those, then don't use the plugin for DA or rather use a plugin for DA that is effectively like a self-sufficient DA layer where you know, a, layer, a layer one does data availability with itself, right? So all of these things are fairly easy to swap out in the software implementation. And the protocol itself does, not, does its best. I don't want to say it doesn't, period, but hopefully it does its best to avoid enshrining baggage from uh, any particular layer one. Does that answer your question? Yeah.
Perfect. I, I have a community question that fits quite well into this topic. Um, the question is, um, so Fuel includes all the components to run a complete layer one solution. Um, not not at this time. Uh, not at this time. Okay. The the implementation is still in development. Like the protocol, in theory, is designed to be modular that you can swap these out. But the implementation isn't finished for all of these, obviously, because implementations take a while and a lot of engineering effort. And we do have basically the best engineering team in the space, if I do say so myself. Uh, but it's just a shitload of work. Uh, so the implementation on things that aren't a modular execution layer connected to Ethereum are still very much works in progress. Uh, we're really heads down working on the first iteration, which is just you know something connected to Ethereum. I see. I see. What what would be the benefit running Fuel as a layer one? Uh, if someone took like forked the code, let's say, just like how people can fork Geth, like someone you know forks the fuel code, or if they create a second implementation based on our specifications, uh, and this is something that fuel is rather unique in compared to many many other chains. I guess I shouldn't say unique. I should say it's special or different compared to many many other chains because there's very few chains that do this. Uh, is that it takes a specs first approach to development, uh, where there's actually a specification. A written specification that's fairly easy to understand. It's not like the Ethereum yellow paper with a bunch of math and stuff, right? It's like a software engineer's uh, specification that anyone can read and use it to re-implement a client of the protocol in any language they want. Uh, so they don't actually have to use our implementation. They can use, they can rewrite their own. Uh, but regardless, they take on implementation of the protocol uh, and then they run it as layer one. What would be the benefit of doing so? Well, you lose, you would lose a connection to the Ethereum community but potentially you gain the ability to be self-sovereign, and that's fairly important, right? It means that you can fix bugs, you can fix exploits and stuff in ways that you can't do for a smart contract. So there's pros and cons. I see, I see. Yeah, so coming coming back to your <clears throat> virtual machine, yeah? So you not only developed uh, this Fuel VM, you also created your own uh, development language, yeah? which is called Sway. And I've seen you've made a, a very bold statement that your programming langu language will be the dominant one uh, for smart contract developments in some years. Yeah? So um, that made me curious to, to hear about your opinion, why Sway will be the number one development ecosystem for smart contracts in future. Yeah, so there's a few reasons. Oh, sorry, if I could ask you to mute again. Thank you. Uh, so there's a few reasons why I imagine that Sway is going to be a dominant smart contract language in a few years. But maybe I should also give uh, the listeners here a short background on Sway if they're not familiar. Sway is a high-level language, similar to Solidity. And it can be compiled down to various blockchain uh, VM bytecode formats. Uh, one thing that's very important is that Sway is not our language, and it is not a language for the Fuel VM. It is a high-level language that empowers you to write reliable and efficient smart contracts. And it works currently on to compile that, it compiles down to the Fuel virtual machine. But we are actually actively working on a backend for Yule. Once you have something in Yule, then you can fairly trivially compile it down to the EVM or to anything else that you can compile to. 
so in the very near future, you'll also be able to write smart contracts for Ethereum in Sway. So what is Sway? Again, has a high-level language. It can compile down to different uh, blockchain bytecode formats. And it's based on Rust. And it has various blockchain. It's like a simplified subset of Rust. And it has various blockchain-specific extensions uh, to it. And the way blockchain VMs largely differ from traditional architectures is they have, one, a notion of cross-contract calls. Right? There's things that live in the state, and you can call them from one to the other. Uh, and they have a notion of contract storage. Uh, right? So each contract has access to uh, some hash map, basically. It's a very large hash map, and you can store stuff in it. Some blockchains, such as Fuel, uh, also have some additional properties, uh, such as assets. Right? Ethereum has Ether as an asset. And you can move assets around with uh, cross-contract calls. And contracts can store assets. They can store Ether. Fuel actually has multiple native assets. Uh, and by multiple, I don't mean like five. I mean like two to the 256. Basically, any contract can mint its own fungible token as a native asset. So if you have, I don't know, let's say the DAI contract, the DAI contract can mint DAI assets. And once those are native assets, they can actually be sent with a contract call. So you can say goodbye to approve and transfer from. You can say goodbye to exploits causing you to have to rush to revoke your approvals, uh, lest all your tokens be stolen all at once. You can say goodbye to infinite approval vulnerabilities uh, because Fuel has multiple native assets. All right, so contracts, contracts defer from, or I guess, the fuel VM and blockchain VMs in general differ from regular virtual machines in these relatively small number of ways. So Sumay has extensions uh, to the language to support these constructs. Uh, beyond that, it's very similar to Rust. Uh, and this allows us to have certain very nice things that you don't get in Solidity. Uh, one of them is, the, one of them that's very obvious uh, is explicit error handling. Solidity doesn't have generics, and it doesn't have some types. Uh, generics uh, means that you can have some logic uh, that you can write once, uh, and then you can apply it over different types at compile time. Uh, and then some types are basically unions. If you're familiar with unions in C, uh, they can have tags, I guess, then Rust their tagged unions, unions specifically. Uh, but they basically allow you to represent different uh, different types in a single like memory space, single overlapping memory space. Uh, so this prevents you from wasting a bunch of excess memory or space in general to store the different types because you only have to store like a the biggest of those types. The rest kind of use memory in, in between. Uh, and you have to say, okay, well, why are the why are generics and some types so important? Is that if you combine them, you can have this thing that Rust and Sway call a result. Uh, and result allows you to wrap, essentially, the result of some operation that is fallible. An example of a fallible operation would be recovering a signature from, or sorry, not recovering, recovering a public key from a signature and a message hash. Uh, in Solidity land, this is EC recover, right? EC recover, if the signature is invalid or, I don't know, some other things, then uh, in Solidity, instead of panicking instead of reverting or anything like that, the easy recover 
uh, process in Solidity will set the public key, or I guess not the public key, the address, will set the address to zero. They'll use some magic sentinel value of zero. Now, the problem with this is that in your code, if you forget to check that thing, then anyone in the world can just send an invalid signature and pretend to be address zero. And guess what? If you happen to use address zero as a burn address because you don't have burn functionality and you kind of just, you know, people just send tokens or coins to address zero as some burn functionality, well, now anyone can just take all that money or those tokens, right? And Solidity, the language, does not enforce anything. Moreover, uh, you have to do checks at runtime that are potentially fairly expensive to check some of these things. Now, what a result does is it wraps the result, the result of like the result, result type, the proper noun, uh, wraps the result, the, the non-proper noun, of uh, an operation. Uh, and in order to actually get the result of an operation, you have to unwrap this result. And the process of unwrapping must be done if you want to get to that result, if you want to get to that value. And if you unwrap, if sorry, if the operation had an error and you try to unwrap and it's actually an error, then the whole thing panics, right? Which in the you know, Ethereum or fuel transaction land would be reverting, which is good because it means that people can't steal your money if the transaction reverts. Uh, and you must do this. You have no choice because it's enforced at compile time within the type system of the language. You must unwrap because you can't use a result directly because the result wraps an actual value. Uh, so this is the difference between explicit error handling, which is what Sway has, and implicit error handling, which is what Solidity has. And this is just one of the many ways in which Sway empowers you to write reliable smart contracts and where Solidity just doesn't. As just a fundamental design of the language, Solidity does not actually allow you or empower you to write safe smart contracts. You have to like manually go in remember all of these rules by hand. Auditors have to remember all of these rules, and you have to go and check them, and there's no tools. The compiler doesn't tell you anything. And Sway contracts will just fundamentally be easier to write, be easier to write securely than Solidity. Now you might say, OK, why Sway and not, I don't know, Rust or something like that, right? Why would you need a whole new language? Uh, by building your own compiler, uh, it allows you to add checks at compile time in the compiler itself, leveraging the entire compiler flow and all the analysis that the compiler does. And one example of a thing you can do that is still a problem in Solidity contracts to this day, I don't even know how many years Ethereum ha has been out, how many years Solidity has been out, how many people are apparently building amazing tools for Ethereum, uh, and yet people are still sorry, contracts are still being exploited due to reentrancy. Despite all the apparently amazing you know, Ethereum ecosystem developers and tooling developers, contracts are still being written with reentrancy vulnerabilities, even to this day. And this is something that if you had uh, some Rust thing, like some Rust SDK uh, or some framework Rust, that's not a compiler. That's an SDK. Uh, and if you write idiomatically in the SDK, maybe you can avoid blockchain-specific vulnerabilities, such as reentrancy, uh, but you have to write idiomatically. And an example of idiomatic writing is check effects interaction. Right? If you're writing a Solidity and you write check effects interaction, you are not vulnerable to reentrancy. But you have to, you, you have to go out of your way 
to write idiomatic code and check that you've written idiomatic code by hand because the compiler doesn't tell you because the compiler is a Rust compiler or in the case of Solidity, it's you know the Solidity compiler, which we all know how terrible that is. Uh, but if you have an actual blockchain-specific, language-specific compiler, then you can leverage the full analysis of the compiler. And for example, the compiler can actually tell you, hey, this piece of code is vulnerable to reentrancy in a way that an SDK in a more traditional high-level language like Rust would not be able to tell you. And in fact, we have an experimental branch in the Sway compiler that will tell you if your contract is vulnerable to reentrancy. So there's a big list of contracts that are that have, you know, not contracts that have been vulnerable, contracts that were exploited due to reentrancy vulnerabilities that someone compiled. It's available on GitHub. I expect that list to be zero for Sway. If it's not zero, it's because someone intentionally turned off this warning that will be emitted by the by the compiler. Like they actually intentionally took it off to shoot themselves in the foot. But like if someone keeps the warnings on, which they should if they're sane, uh, then there should be zero reentry vulnerabilities in any Sway contract ever for all time. And this is something that you don't get out of Solidity. It's something you don't get out of Rust. It's something you don't get out of many languages. And it's something that Sway is effectively leading the. the uh, another reason that I think that. Sway will be the dominant smart contract language, despite being fairly new. Other languages, such as you know, Solidity, have been in development for how many years? Six, seven, whatever. Move has been in development for five, four or five years. Uh, Sway is actually one of the most mature languages in terms of features out there. Right? We have things like pattern matching, uh, exhaustive pattern matching. We have things like type inference. Uh, we have things like generics, uh, some types. We have an extensive standard library, and the standard library is actually written in Sway. Right? Other languages, such as Move, write their standard library in Rust. It's, the standard library isn't really a standard library. It's actually more like some compiler intrinsics that are exposed cutely, uh, but they're actually like intrinsics in either the compiler or even potentially in the virtual machine itself. Uh, the Sway standard library is written in Sway itself. Uh, and we have things like collections, like vectors and whatnot. Uh, and the language is already at a state where it's more mature than almost any other language, if not every other language in the blockchain space today. And that gap is only going to grow in the future. So it's not just our current position, but it's our velocity that we are moving faster than any other project and any other language in the space. So from being you know, starting from the current place to going you know, at the fastest velocity, well, guess what? This is the only one place you can go, and that's the moon. So that's why I think that's why, in the not too distant future, will be the dominant smart contract language. Yeah, this is really impressive. Yeah, thank you very much. So it's actually crazy yeah, to say that uh, Solidity doesn't improve after all those years. Yeah. So normally you should expect yeah, that, uh, especially those high risky uh, errors yeah, should be handled already yeah, by then. But um, coming back to, to learning Sway, um, how, how difficult is it for a Rust developer to, to adapt to the changes in Sway? So Sway is basically a simplified subset of Rust. It doesn't have a borrow checker uh, because there's no notion of concurrent code in Sway. Like a single Sway contract and a single transaction fuel will be executed sequentially to itself. It's only transactions are executed in parallel to each other, but like the fuel VM is itself single-threaded. So because of that, there's no 
concurrency, multi-threadedness, you don't really need a borrow checker to the same extent. So if you've written Rust, then it should take you like an, a few minutes to pick up Sway. If you've written Solidity, if you've written Solidity at like a medium to advanced level, I expect it to take you no longer than like an hour or two to pick up Sway, because a lot of the logic fundamentally is the same as the EVM and as Solidity. You have things like a contract, you have a notion of API methods, right? You have internal functions, and the rest is just syntax like oh you have an addition here you have an unwrap there i mean there's functions just like in any other high level language so it shouldn't take someone who is an intermediate solidity more than an hour or two to basically become proficient enough at sway to start writing contracts could you tell us a bit uh, about the current grants program um, do you have a specific focus for the type of projects you want to give grants yeah, so we have a grants program. It was announced, I think, on the Fuel Labs Twitter earlier today, maybe yesterday, but don't call me. Don't just look up on Twitter in the last two days, and it, sh it should be there. Uh, we're giving out grants to bootstrap early ecosystem projects. There's not really a restriction on what people like are needed to to build. People, if you know, like, if you want to build fundamental infrastructure at the protocol level, good. If you want to build smart contracts, good. If you want to build libraries, good. There's not really uh, any any restriction here. Uh, obviously, self-contained, not self-contained, but like self potentially longer-term self-sufficient projects are the most preferred things that could eventually grow out and spin out into their completely own you know, quote-unquote profitable projects or protocols. Uh, or I guess the most preferred because those ones uh, will kind of foster a lot of ecosystem and user growth and the ecosystem. But that being said, even if you're not, even if you want to build something that's uh, like a something that's a public good, then that's also fine. There's not really any restriction. So the grants program basically just, you know, if you want to build something on fuel, whatever it may be, uh, then please reach out to us either for the grants program or just if you want to build something in general. Awesome, awesome. Um, yeah, I, I'd like to take a step back. Um, now we have had a good view on the developer side. Yeah, so uh, let's take a look on the user side of things. So would uh, Fuel work with with uh, standard wallets, for example, like MetaMask, or would user need a, a Fuel-specific in-house developed wallet? So yes and no. Uh, in the sense that we will be developing our own in-house wallet, not will be, but we are currently developing our own in-house wallet. Uh, that'll be, you know, an extension similar to MetaMask that everyone knows and loves, not anything too fancy there. We intend to have various nice things in our wallet, things like transaction simulation. So you could simulate and kind of guess the effects of a transaction before you even send it. Uh, in addition to other nice features like uh, easier view-only mode, easier uh, impersonator mode, all this other stuff. Uh, for those of you who have been following the impersonator work that some some guys have been doing, uh, it's like an extension that allows you to pretend to be someone else, uh, to, like to pretend that you know the the public key provide or the address public address provided by your uh, your Web3 extension is someone else. And you don't actually need to know the private key for that. Uh, it's a very useful tool, right? So you can pretend to be someone else and view people's stats and stuff and dApps. Very, very convenient. But it's not co it's not compatible with MetaMask because uh, you know you can only have one Web3 provider. 
So for us, we'll be, we'll be baking that functionality in directly into our wallet. Uh, so you don't have to worry about, oh, I guess I'll use a different browser. Or, oh, I guess I'll have to uninstall MetaMask and then reinstall it and whatever. It's, it'll just all just be in one nice wallet extension. It'll, it'll, of course, be free and open source, unlike MetaMask, which is not open source. Uh, but that's our, our wallet. Will we be compatible with Ethereum-style wallets? The answer is yes, indirectly. And this is where Fuel as a protocol has certain flexibilities. And I alluded to this earlier, that it's not just about speed. Uh, and security is also about flexibility, right? Uh, where flexibility is a kind of a big selling point. So the fuel transaction format is UTXO based. Uh, I didn't really bring this up earlier because it's actually not too important if you don't intend to use the flexibility. If you want to use fuel like you use Ethereum, you can use it like you use Ethereum. You don't have to care about the fact that UTXOs are there. Completely irrelevant to most end users. But if you do, then you can. In other words, it's optional flexibility, not mandatory. You have to know about all this extra stuff. It's completely optional. One thing that UTXOs allows us to do is you can actually lock coins behind some conditions. So on Ethereum, uh, to spend from your account, the condition is hard-coded into the protocol. The only thing you can do is you can send a single ECDSA signature over SecP256K1, and it must have some incrementing nonce, right? And you must have enough fees to pay for the transaction. And that's the only thing that enforces the validity of someone being able to spend from your account, right? Uh, but there is this notion of account abstraction that allows pro making uh, the validity conditions of who can spend whatever from your account or who can spend your UTXO more programmable. And that's what we actually have. We have stateless account abstraction through predicates on UTXOs, which is just a long-winded way of saying you can add conditions to your coins being spent. Uh, what condition can you add? You can actually add a condition that is effectively going through and uh, verifying, I think it was EIP 721, the one that's like a type transaction. I keep forgetting if it's 721 or 712. But it's the type transaction standard that MetaMask will sign over with you know, the Ethereum signed message followed by 32 uh, domain separator. Uh, you can actually encode that logic into this condition to spend your coin. Uh, therefore, indirectly, in other words, not enshrined into the fuel protocol, but at the application layer as a some application that someone, anyone in the world, any user can just deploy on top of fuel. Uh, you can verify signature generated from MetaMask or any Ethereum wallet. And this is very important that it's not enshrined to the protocol because, like I said, a lot of what we've done is to avoid uh, enshrining backwards compatibility baggage to any particular layer one, such as Ethereum specifically or an EVM or anything like that. So the verifying a MetaMask signature is not done at the protocol level, it's done at the application level so that anyone can do that. And this doesn't just apply to MetaMask. It would apply to Bitcoin. You could use a Bitcoin wallet for signing transactions if you wanted to. You, like, you could use a Bitcoin wallet to uh, carry your key material, I should really say. Because you're not, I guess you're signing transactions, but you're signing something, right? So you could use a Bitcoin wallet to store your keys. You could use an Ethereum wallet. You could use a Solana wallet if you wanted to. As long as they could sign an arbitrary message, users could then, at the application layer, deploy some conditions on their coins that say, this will verify a signature from 
that is different than the kind of canonical and shine signature in the field protocol. Fascinating, fascinating. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, talking about flexibility, yeah. So we we learned now a lot about the architecture of, of fuel. I'd like to um, see now those puzzle pieces, yeah, on a broader scale. So, how how do you see the modular blockchain narrative, and how does fuel fit into this picture overall? Maybe you can explain how the, the future structure would look like in a modular blockchain world. Yeah, so uh, there's, let's see how I can approach this. So the current state of affairs is that a variety of execution systems are leveraging Ethereum layer one call data for uh, data availability. And this is fairly expensive. It's even even at the current you know bear market prices and gas usage of ethereum it's still fairly expensive uh and you know as soon as you hit a bull market or as soon as the price price rises or as soon as there's you know some nft minting going on that the price of ether or sorry the price of gas rises uh you know goodbye cheap roll of fees uh so this isn't exactly a long-term solution and unfortunately a lot of uh projects that are currently leveraging Ethereum for data availability have built into their system various gas schedules and other things that make assumptions around the current state of things. The current state of things where call data on Ethereum is 100% rounded to the nearest integer off the price of a transaction. But this isn't the future world. In the future, when you have scalable modular data layers such as Celestia or such as ETH to post Thanks, sharding, uh, which you know, maybe weighs away, but regardless, at some point it'll get there. Uh, then it kind of flips this on its head, uh, flips on its head, and the price of data posting to the data layer could be much cheaper, at least temporarily. At the very least, uh, while we can't make guarantees about the price, we can at least say the capacity, the throughput of data availability will be much, much, much increased. Uh, and this is ramifications that all of these protocols that have made assumptions about the current state of affairs really deeply ingrained into the protocols uh, are now kind of finding, well, the protocols are now completely not priced correctly and that they may have, they may have accrued baggage over time because of this short-term pricing. Uh, the very kind of obvious and most critical example of this is if call data is very expensive, how do you avoid that cost as a layer two application? Well, you use state, right? You're going to use the state of, your, of the rollup because state is very cheap and call data is very expensive. And this is kind of the opposite of what contracts on Ethereum have been doing for the past years, you know, where they're trying to move things away from state because state is expensive and call data is cheap. Right now, people have to rewrite their entire contracts to make use of more state versus uh, less call data. Uh, so like you can't even port your contracts directly over to protocols like Arbitrum and Optimism unless you want to be really gas inefficient. You really have to just completely rewrite your contracts from scratch uh, to, account, to account for this difference. And then what happens with this is it bloats state, right? Now these protocols are gonna end up with a huge amount of state bloat in a very short amount of time because they had priced things in a way to encourage state bloat instead of discourage it. 
Uh, and this is something that we're very cognizant about and that the fuel protocol is built forward looking, not backwards looking and not current looking. Uh, it's built for a modular future where there's a huge capacity of data availability and this will be a very near future. Uh, and state is still the bottleneck. It is still the bottleneck for uh, the execution really and for chain growth. Uh, I gave various talks, I think at ETH Amsterdam, there was the L2 Amsterdam prior to that, on nuances around resource pricing for state growth. So if anyone's more interested in the topic, uh, please check it out. I think I also gave a talk at ECC further talking about this topic, uh, but the TLDR is that you can influence how people make use of resources on your blockchain through the gas schedule, through the gas pricing of various instructions and other resources. And one thing we're very cognizant, cognizant about as protocol developers in a way that no other protocol is, or any other protocol developers rather, uh, is this notion of we want to discourage people from using too much state and we want to encourage them to use things that are stateless, such as call data. Yeah, <clears throat> that's right, that's right. Yeah, so touching on this on these fee structures, um, there is this ongoing battle between those next generation high throughput layer ones, yeah? So X, Facebook projects, and uh, those different layer two solutions, yeah? So I, I know you are a little biased on this topic, but uh, will both concepts coexist in future? What is your take? So I'll counter that question by saying the question is flawed. Uh, the question is flawed because the notion of two protocols, uh, co you know, some future uh, where you know something happens, two protocols coexisting or whatever. Uh, you know, the flip side to this is, well, do you envision a future where one protocol wins? Uh, is really the flip side of the question. So really, it's the same question, just you know, different, different. It's the, you know, one of them is negative, the other one's positive, but they're basically the same question, ultimately. Uh, and the same applies, and this is something I've been trying to avoid in recent years. The same applies to things like debates around ZK versus optimistic rollups. You know, oh, do you envision a future where they both coexist, or do you envision a future where one of them wins? And a lot of people in the blockchain space like to pick winners. Uh, because especially if those winners are their bags, because it makes them feel good, right? It makes them a tribe. Oh, you know, we all get together and hold hands and sing kumbaya, and we're, you know, we're, we're all we're all gonna we're all gonna go to the moon, right? Uh, but the thing is that the things that we're building are technology, and technology is ruthless, and technology innovates, and technology does not care about your bags. Right, like I could tell you, uh, you know, we could flip this question and say, you know, do you envision a world where Netflix and Blockbuster coexist, or do you think Netflix or Blockbuster will win? Right, uh, and anyone with half a brain will tell you, well, no, clearly, now, uh, now that we have, you know, 2024, uh, uh, we can we can look back in the past, and we have 2020 vision looking back in the past. We say, okay, well, no, obviously, Netflix is going to kill Blockbuster, and they're just going to end up getting completely demolished. Obviously, right? But did Netflix win? Uh, if you look at the state of streaming today, Netflix is not winning, right? Netflix is losing audience, it's losing subscriptions, and it's losing its content because other people have said, hey, Netflix is successful. 
I'm Disney. I'm going to start my own thing called Disney Plus, right? I don't want to give Star Wars uh, to Netflix. I want to collect all that revenue myself, right? Or you have Hulu or you have Amazon or you have all these other streaming sites popping up. Uh, so Netflix didn't win, did it? Uh, so it's not an A and a B. And that's because technology is ruthless and technology does not care about your bags. It does not care that you have a bunch of blockbuster stock in your pension plan, right? It does not care about your Netflix stock. It is ruthless. It will continue to innovate. So the notion that you have A or B, and it must be maybe they coexist or maybe one of them wins is just a fundamentally flawed question because there's another option, which is over some period of time, maybe both of them get displaced. And that's because time continues on, right? It's not, it's not a, you know, one person ends up, you know, being the king of the hill and therefore they're king of the hill for all future time. Right? That's not how technology works, is technology will continue to innovate. And if people don't keep up with the pace of innovation, then they will get not people, but protocols, projects, products. If they don't keep up with innovation, then they will get displaced, period. So do I envision some some point in the future that you know layer two protocols and you know scalable parallel execution layer ones coexist? Probably at some point. Uh, but only at an instant in time. Do I envision that at some other instance in time, maybe the L1s will be dominant or the L2s? Maybe. Uh, but the fact remains that if you don't ruthlessly innovate it over a period of time, you will get displaced, regardless of what you brand yourself as. And that is something that we have done, I think, very well here at Fuel and Fuel Labs. Right? Uh, we created the optimistic, or I created the optimistic rollup design paradigm. We unveiled the first optimistic rollup at DevCon 5, where we unveiled Fuel. Uh, we deployed the first optimistic rollup to main and Ethereum, which to this day is the only trustless rollup in existence. Uh, we also had the first fraud proof, actual production non-whitelisted fraud proof of a rollup be executed on main and Ethereum. Uh, and now we are literally years plural ahead of any other execution system, at least on Ethereum, but also just in general, off shipping a modular execution layer that is designed to be blazingly fast, right? Other rollup projects are still struggling to get out uh, just an EVM in the rollup. They haven't even looked at how can we improve the EVM? How can we make it parallel? What additions or improvements can we make to the fundamental transaction format, protocol design, uh, the VM, right? They haven't even started looking at this. We are like literally years ahead of any other project at this. So I think we've done a good job of not resting on our laurels, but rather constantly and ruthlessly innovating in a way that no other project has or even can uh, currently, but we aren't going to stop uh, because as soon as you stop, you die. I absolutely agree. Yeah? So we don't have a crystal ball to see in the future. And it's, it's uh, yeah, especially in this web-free space, the innovation rate is insane, yeah? So one year in web free is like 10 years in the traditional markets and yeah talking about innovations um besides fuel what what other blockchain innovations or projects would you highlight as groundbreaking there have been a few over the years uh one thing that i do want to emphasize is that just because a protocol in its or project in its totality has is not great or that it has flaws doesn't mean that there isn't something good to be found in there. Uh, one thing that I do my best to do 
which Bitcoin max maximalists don't do. Right? Bitcoin maximalists are very proud to go on Twitter and say, most things are shit coins, therefore I won't look at them because by and large, you know, just by probabilities alone, there's going to be a scam, a shitcoin. I'm not even going to look at what they're talking about, right? I do my best to do the exact opposite, which is even if something is widely recognized in you know, popular thought as being a scam, I will still look at what they put out to see if there's something interesting there, regardless of what it is. Uh, like I will even look into I IOTA. Just not saying IOTA is a scam, just but also not saying it's not. Uh, you know, I'll look into I'll look into anything because there may be some interesting th things there. Uh, and if you're a protocol research researcher or stuff, I would hope and expect that you would do the same. Uh, so again, just because a protocol or project as a whole has some flaws doesn't mean that there's nothing good to extract from it. Uh, the converse is also true. Just because there's one good thing in a protocol or project doesn't mean that the whole thing is not a scam or the whole thing is not a shitcoin. The whole thing is the thing as a whole could could be a scam or a shitcoin, right? Or it could just be something not that great. Maybe it, it could be neither, right? There's a, there's always the option that it's not a scam, but it's also just not great. So uh, what are things that? Uh, and I'm going to list some things. I'm not saying that these things are not great. Actually, a lot of them are great, uh, but they also do have some suboptimal parts to them. I should say. Uh, one of them that I think is particularly interesting is Move. Uh, Move as a language is less mature than Sway in many ways. However, it does bring various nice things to the table despite its relative immaturity, uh, right? The notion of having enshrined programmable assets at the base layer and having rules within the virtual machine around safety of those assets and also formal verification of properties around those rules are very powerful. Right? It's a bit obtuse to use. Uh, it doesn't let you do certain things that you would be able to do in Fuel or the EVM even. Well, uh, you don't necessarily need all that flexibility all the time. Uh, and if you don't, then Move does offer some compelling alternative as long as you can get over the hurdle of their, again, relatively immature language feature set and tooling. Uh, but other than that, you know, it does bring some compelling innovations to the table in terms of language design. So it's definitely not something to overlook. Uh, other things are Solana, right? Solana, you could say, is one of the early pioneers of the notion of parallel transaction execution as a thing that is important, right? Uh, other blockchains may have tried it, right? Now, this is something that I was doing research myself in uh, back in the day when I was still a consensus, you know, but they really popularized it and brought it to popular thought that parallel transaction execution is something important. And they've done, I think, a pretty decent job, especially from people who didn't come from a blockchain background and didn't build their system learning from the mistakes of blockchains in the past. Rather, they came in with a fresh look, uh, which meant that their system inevitably had various inefficiencies because they didn't learn from the mistakes of the past. Uh, but regardless, it was a very good first attempt, and they bring a lot of innovation in the implementation space of really pushing the boundary of what you can do to get a, like a really efficient implementation, really getting that high parallelism uh, with low overhead. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of interesting things happening on that front. Obviously, you know, their consensus consensus maybe not so much maybe maybe not so much in, innovative. Uh, so that's two of the more prominent things that I can think of. Uh, is that satisfactory, or do you want more? If you have more, we are always always glad yeah, to to learn about uh, new things. Yeah. 
maybe something that is more exotic or or just a theory at the moment that is not on the market yet? Something that's more exotic. Uh, maybe a lot of the innovation that's happening in the around ZK stuff, uh, right? There's a lot of a lot of different ways you can do ZK with a lot of different points on the trade-off space and so on. And we, you know, you have to admit, despite the relative uh, youngness of the field and implantations. Uh, there are a lot of interesting results that are coming out, and potentially it has promise in the somewhat distant future of you know being able to deliver on a lot of the nice properties while minimizing a lot of the shortcomings of zk proofs and systems. Uh, so that's definitely something I'm keeping an eye on longer term. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So do you think that that EVM will offer native parallel execution in future someday? So in this case, to reiterate what I was saying earlier, this would be strict access lists and not optimistic concurrency. Do I think it will? Uh, maybe, but also maybe not, in the sense that there's, there's a few issues with that. Uh, and there's a few issues with that related to the layer two roadmap, right? There's a lot of kind of drive right now to move EVMs into layer two or into sidechains or whatever uh, and have some sort of equivalence between the layer one and layer two EVMs uh, so that you can use them interchangeably. You can reuse the tools and wallets and contracts and stuff. Uh, there's kind of a lot of demand and drive for this. And the problem is that this will discourage innovation of the execution layer at the layer one, uh, right? There's no need to innovate the layer one EVM if the layer two EVMs can support, you know, potentially higher throughput, maybe not much higher, but you know, higher throughput and there's a bunch of them. So you get parallel execution across layer twos, not within the layer two, but across layer twos. Uh, now this is kind of like a weird feedback cycle because discouraging innovation at layer one now means that if layer twos want to stay equivalent with layer ones, they can't actually innovate. They have to stay equivalent. Uh, and if they start innovating, now you have fragmentation. Now you have like EVM optimism, EVM arbitrum, EVM scroll, right? And like different flavors of the EVM and that'll be chaos. It'll just be, it'll be so bad for everyone, users and developers like. Uh, so you have this weird, I don't like stuck between a rock and a hard place. Whereas like, you know, you discourage from innovating, uh, but then that kind of screws you. Uh, but of course, you know, if you do innovate rapidly in layer one, how do you innovate specifically, right? Like, are you going to innovate to cater to what Arbitrum wants? Or are you going to cater to what Optimism wants or what Scroll wants? Because each of them have different desires, right? They may have different primitives, different users, different cryptography they may want to support and stuff. Right now, this becomes highly politicized, so it's all a very complex situation. Anyways, uh, that was kind of a that was kind of like a tangent. But getting back to you know whether or not the EVM will support strict access lists, uh, that would require a, that would require a new transaction format, which means that uh, would it require a new transaction format, or could you repurpose optional access lists? Potentially not, but at the very least, it would require some sort of breaking change. Uh, to the to the EVM or to the transaction format, which unfortunately means you would need things like buy-in from the layer twos and whatnot. Uh, you'd also need innovation. You'd also need like each implementation to also support this. 
which is difficult when the current leading implementation is Geth, and Geth has a lot of backwards compatibility baggage. It's hard to innovate on that. You can look at Brock Elmore on Twitter complaining that you know that we should all just be using Aragon instead of Geth. But regardless, you know, Geth is still the dominant one and until it's not. We're stuck with that backwards compatibility baggage. So overall, I'm not going to say it'll never have strict access lists, but these things, improvements to the EVM, especially these breaking ones, just happen very, very slowly. So there's not something I would expect anytime soon, if ever. All right, yeah. Yeah, it's it's getting more and more complicated, yeah, to navigate the whole blockchain world each year. So I feel that this jungle of different approaches and solutions yeah, will also uh, yeah, lead to, to absolute chaos yeah, at the end. And I see that fuel is prepared yeah, to collect all those uh, yeah, failed projects and <laughs> rescue the, the whole space yeah, as the bright night um, that will that will lead the way yeah, in a in a better future yeah with a well structured non compromised solution yeah so it was really very impressive yeah to to hear your take so we are now already ten minutes over over the hour I don't want to overstress your time so coming to the end of this AMA. I, I want to thank you for your time and maybe could you could you give our listeners uh, some some informations how to learn more about fuel and how how can they contribute to your vision? Yeah, for sure. So uh, if you want to follow me, I'm J at jadler zero on Twitter. If you want to follow Fuel Labs, it's at Fuel Labs underscore on Twitter. And uh, that also links to our website, fuel.network. Uh, so if you want to have mm, like more information, or if you want to learn Sway, or you want to see what projects are building on Fuel, then uh, go to the website, fuel.network. Uh, and there's a bunch of links and stuff there. Uh, and yeah, if we're also hiring across the board. Protocol developers, compiler developers. We're actually hiring application developers to write Sway also and write applications in Sway. Uh, you know, if you want to work on an SDK, or if you want to work TypeScript, front-end, uh, what have you, uh, we're hiring across the stack. We're also hiring DevRel uh, and uh, growth and all the stuff. So, and, and basically, every position you can imagine. Uh, if something is not on our job board, then feel free to reach out to me or to Fuel Labs on Twitter. And then you know, we can figure out something with, that's more generic. Uh, but basically, and anyone, anything, you know, is, if you're sufficiently qualified, then uh, we're hiring across the stack. Awesome, awesome. So, thank you, John, for your time and all the amazing insights. It was really a, pl a pleasure. Yeah? And it was awesome yeah, to talk to you and hope to talk to you soon in another AMA. So, we got so many. And uh, questions from the community left, and I think uh, we can fill up several AMAs with this. So, hope to see you soon and wish you all the best for the future development of Fuel. Yeah, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, John. 
And yeah, thanks to the community for the excellent questions. I wish you all the best and goodbye. See you in the next one. This recording has been prepared and made available by VVV. It is for informational purposes only and should not be considered a solicitation to sell, buy or subscribe to any financial instruments or products. VVV does not express any opinion as to the present or future price of any instrument mentioned in this recording. The information provided in this recording is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published, but VVV, along with its directors, officers and employees, does not accept any liability for any loss arising from the use of this information as it may change in the future without notice. Any decision made by a party after listening to this recording shall be on the basis of its own research and not based on the information and opinions provided by VVV.